and welcome to Poly Pages, the podcast where genuine poly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'll come out when I'm ready. Don't lock the door. Take me in. I'm Krista. Hi, and I'm Laura Boyle. And Laura, where in the world are you? I am in Connecticut, about an hour and a half outside of New York City at the last stop on the commuter line to the city. Great. And uh, I'm, I'm in San Francisco, so on the entire other end of the country from you. Just want to thank you so much for being here, Laura. We are doing a special podcast episode in conjunction with the Polly Pages Book Club, uh, which I have been facilitating with Claire for a little over the last six months. We've read Polly Secure and Love's Not Colorblind. And this quarter, we're really excited to be reading the polyamory breakup book. Um, and so I'm really excited to chat with you today about that. But before we jump in, just want to uh, give you a little bit of an opportunity to say who you are and kind of a brief um, summary of, of your, your experience with polyamory. Uh, well, so I've been polyamorous for 15 years now. And over that time, I think I have been polyamorous in about as many contexts and formats as you can manage while still staying in North America. Um, I have lived in a cohabiting V. I have um, practiced non-hierarchical polyamory. I'm currently solo polyamorous. Um, I was in a primary couple that, uh, you know, operated in a very hierarchical way for a while. So now, uh, as penance for my various sins, I am a polyamorous educator and writer. Um, and I keep a blog and a podcast under the Ready for Polyamory brand name. And that's much of what I do with my time. <laughs> Great. Well, so excited to have you and, and your expertise here with us today. So as I mentioned before, we are reading the Polyamory Breakup Book by Kathy Lapriola. Um, and specifically today, we're going to be discussing part one of the book, which is what are the most common causes of poly breakups and can they be prevented? Um, so I thought we could just start by um, each of us introducing kind of the lenses which we're reading book. I know that you mentioned currently you're solo polyamorous. Um, so um, yeah, I thought it would be great if you could just, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about um, your, your reading of, the, of this book. Well, so for me, this was an interesting reading of this book, partly because I've read it before, but also because I'm now reading it in a very different sort of relational position than I was in the last time that I read this book because I now uh, reside alone, consider myself or maybe my children, my primary partner and uh, conduct my relationships very differently than I did previous. So I can now sort of in reading through these big seven that she talks about, recognize all of these breakup conditions because I've done a lot of them um, and also see them as uh, parts of the reasons why I've chosen to conduct my polyamory the way I do, right? The sort of focus on compatibility is a lot of the driving factor in the way I choose to engage or not engage in particular relationships. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so, I'm so excited to chat with you because I'm coming at this from a very different lens. Um, I have been in the same primary relationship for almost 16 years. I met my spouse in high school um, and we became poly a little over three years ago. Um, and we've experienced all different kinds of relationships in that time um, and have had our share of breakups. Um, but yeah, this is my first time reading through the book. So I'm coming at it kind of with, with fresh eyes. Um, so I'm really excited to, to kind of hear what, what you're picking up on the second time around um, that maybe didn't resonate with you, with you the first time. Um, and so I wanted to start by, by asking why, why do you think a book on poly breakups is necessary? What, what does this book bring um, to, you know, the poly experience um, that, that was maybe missing before? I think a lot like how Polysecure builds on other works on attachment theory in cutting out bias and the assumption that the polyamory is the problem and gets right to the heart of, well, these are the underlying relationship issues that you might be having and these are the ways that polyamory might highlight some portions of it. The polyamory breakup book does the same thing for breakups, right? This whole causes section, this big seven, are all about issues that you might also have in monogamous relationships, but looking at them through a lens of, well, but how do we exacerbate or minimize this particular issue in different polyamorous frameworks and why does that matter? Yeah, so kind of along the same uh, the same lines, um, how do you think poly breakups are different than monogamous breakups, or or are they? <laughs> so, uh, I've written a blog post where I essentially say that polyamorous breakups and monogamous breakups are exactly the same, except if you're considering that sometimes polyamory means you choose not to acknowledge issues in a relationship for too long because you have other relationships to hide them behind. Um, simultaneously, sometimes it's the opposite, as this book sort of talks about. Sometimes polyamory highlights the problems in a relationship that you might have ignored for longer, right? Uh, but I think um, at the heart of it, Polyamorous breakups and monogamous breakups are really similar, but polyamorous relationships in and of themselves are bound to fewer constraints or um, insistences on certain patterns that monogamous get hung up in in a sort of sunk cost fallacy way more often. That isn't to say that polyamorous people never do. But I think it's a little less common. And so some of these breakups might seem more common in polyamory. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just, let's dive in. Uh, I'm really excited to, to chat with you. As we've kind of touched on, this first part talks about uh, the big seven reasons um, that 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 people break up um, that aren't polyamory related. So uh, she talks about sexual problems, incompatibility around money, domestic issues, 
conflicts over autonomy and intimacy, drug and alcohol addiction, untreated mental health conditions, and physical, verbal, or emotional abuse. Uh, those, are, those are the big seven. Um, so what were, what were your reactions from, from reading about all of these, uh, these reasons in, in part one? I mean, some of it, you kind of read and go, well, duh, people break up when they're incompatible. Um, and just kind of roll your eyes when you read the initial description. And then you go, okay, wait, you have to keep reading and see why we're talking about this. And it makes perfect sense to kind of get into this idea that sometimes people don't recognize that just because polyamory means a relationship doesn't have to be every aspect of your life doesn't mean that you still have to be compatible right there's a certain sense I think for some people coming into this that like well if I'm only going to spend a day a week with a person or a day every two weeks with a person we don't have to have much at all in common do we and then they reach any of these factors and go oh wait it still matters. Um, and so some of these issues sort of hit home for me more now than they did before because I've lived through more breakups because of them or watched people I care about live through more breakups because of them. Um, the like kind of section about autonomy and intimacy especially hit differently to me now than it did the first time I read it because the first time I read it I was like oh yes this makes perfect sense people need to know how introverted or extroverted they are and sort of plan accordingly and now I'm like wait none of this is a fixed scale I have been at like every number on this scale in the last five years why are we describing this as if this is a fixed polysaturation level that people need to be aware of and religiously ascribe to? So I had some moments like that on the reread that I didn't expect to have. Um, and now I'm losing my own train of thought. But in general, I think these big seven were all like kind of big important points for people to consider when they're considering compatibility with a partner you know like you can't show up to a first date with a checklist and be like do you agree with me on exactly how we're going to spend our money on this date in the future when we assume we will combine them because you might never <laughs> but you also do at some point want to start noticing those things about partners if there's someone who you want to combine finances with someday. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, folks, sight gags. I'm doing the thing where I make huge gestures and then assume that you can see that I'm shrugging. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's really a, an interesting yeah. point because, um, you know, these big seven incompatibilities are not things that that would come up on a first date like as as you said you are you're not necessarily going to be talking about you know all of these things to to see if this person is going to make a a good long-term partner for you um whereas i think in part two 
the the issues around um like poly related breakups like though those are things that may be able, like you might be able to spot earlier on well right or there are things that polyamorous authorities in scare quotes uh suggest that you have discussions about in the first few conversations because we've noticed that those are things that we have polyamory particular breakups about whereas these monogamous issues are mostly issues that come up later or issues that you don't notice until you're quite close with someone like you won't realize necessarily that someone is showing signs of abuse that you're being love bombed or gaslit or what have you until you're relatively deep into that pattern of behavior or at least I know I didn't in the relationship that I was in where those patterns took place. Like I didn't recognize that any of them were happening until more than a year into the relationship. That wasn't a thing I felt equipped to understand. And like, I think that's sometimes even more the case in polyamorous spaces. We're finally having some folks come out and like create resources to help folks recognize when those patterns are happening in polyamorous spaces because all of our scripts around abuse are sort of monogamous written scripts that then people get stuck in uh in a place of like well i'm already feeling kind of isolated because my friends don't get my polyamory uh and they don't notice that they're also being isolated by their partner or whatever and we're finally getting some folks creating good content around that. I know Claire has created some and, um, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, her username on everything is polyamorous black girl, uh, has created a bunch of good content around polyamory and abuse that I think is Alicia, Alicia or Alicia. I'm sorry. I don't know how it, she pronounces it. Uh, they're just like, there is finally some good content coming out about this, but like 10 years ago when I was in a relationship that turned out this way, I was just like, oh no, is this, or is it, I can't, I'm, <laughs> and if I, the things that I told people about it, they were like, it's the polyamory. And so having a polyamory breakup book that makes sure that people know it's not the polyamory when it's this, this is relationships is really useful in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. You know? And and Labriola talks about that a little bit towards the end of part 1 whether the relationship is a is a poly fail or a relationship fail. And so I think so much of this part 1 is is recognizing where there are relationship fails, um, where polyamory is not not the cause. And I think it's so important um, for us to be able to distinguish between the two so that you can learn and grow and be able to recognize, you know, how to prevent those sort of um, incompatibilities in, in future relationships. Exactly. And for so many of us, we aren't given great patterns or um, sort of models for finding compatible partners in any of these more detailed things. We're just sort of expected to, well, if you love each other enough, you will then make all these other things work in the like wider cultural framework. 
that then these breakup reasons are breakup reasons in every style of relationship, right? And so I think a lot of people, when they come to polyamory, they go, oh, great, a convenient way for me to find more relationships where I can actually just love the person and ignore all of these compatibility factors. So having a breakup book where Labriola acknowledges that all of these compatibility factors really do still matter, especially as you entwine relationships, you know, she does focus a great deal on sort of uh, cohabiting or quasi cohabiting units, people who are like moving in and out of each other's lives in a very close entangled way. Uh, I think partly because that's who then has these big detailed breakup stories to tell a lot of the time. Many of us uh, don't share our breakup stories about our less entangled relationships, but like a lot of people I think end up approaching polyamorous relationships, assuming that without that entanglement, a lot of these compatibilities don't matter, but in fact, they end up kicking in sort of sooner than people think. Uh, again, in scare quotes, um, <laughs> because I know as someone who chooses not to cohabit with folks anymore, these compatibility issues still end up mattering a lot if it's someone who I'm going to spend any serious amount of time with because my life still has to incorporate them, right? Like I still have children, so I still have to share enough values with them to feel comfortable with them being around my kids, for example, things like that. Um, and these are the kinds of things that would end up falling under some of the issues that she talks about where she's talking about like distributing household chores or who's caring for whose children how. You don't actually have to be cohabiting to be incompatible in how you think about will a partner or a meta spend time with or babysit your kid or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that, that she says at the end, uh, towards the end of part one is no one deliberately picks the wrong partners. However, we often ignore red flags that could easily alert us to potential problems. So we've kind of been talking around this, I think throughout, throughout our discussion. Um, why do you think we, we ignore those, those red flags or even yellow flags, um, that, you know, might, might indicate that this this going to I mean there are lots of reasons why you might ignore a red flag some of it is that when you're in the like hormonal mix of NRE chemicals and meeting someone new and getting into a relationship it can feel like lots of things don't matter as much as they may later. Um, but also, sometimes, sometimes folks like to create narratives for themselves about who they think they are that don't match their actual behavior, right? Like, for years, I considered myself an extremely spontaneous person. And so I would pick partners who also considered themselves spontaneous people 
get myself myself into schedules that were like super last minute filled in convoluted whatever whatevered and then realize a couple months into seeing these people that this was actually super unsustainable i couldn't plan my life this way i was the person in the breakup book who labriola like outlines as uh i don't actually know if this is in part one the like person who can't manage their time that might be in part two um but the like i just became that person because i was like i'm super spontaneous this is gonna be great the narrative you create about yourself can make you ignore red and yellow flags in other people because you're like this is who i am i'm super chill i'm gonna go with the flow and improve this this is gonna work out a good polyamorous person would do this this way there is no such thing as a correct polyamorous person or the better polyamorous person for doing this and you don't get secret points for like <laughs> being more chill about these things if there's something you care about you have to be able to like phrase that out loud and say it to your partners and come to real consensus about it and i think a lot of the time especially people socialized as women but like all of us to some extent don't do that at the beginning of relationships because we want them to like us we think this is going well <laughs> yeah definitely so i want to spend a little bit of time uh acknowledging the book's limitations so this book was published in 2019 and in um, sort of the first few pages, Labriola talks about kind of her method for um, for writing this book. So she um, wrote this book based on 45 interviews with different polyamorous people, um, primarily from the U.S. and um, some from from outside the U.S. But undoubtedly, not everybody is going to see their experiences reflected here. Um, and so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because even though, you know, she kind of covers these, these big seven reasons that, um, that people break up that aren't poly related, um, not, not all of the stories and anecdotes here are going to fit in with, you know, everybody's experiences with, with breakups. So I wanted to, to get your thoughts on that. I mean, I think the one thing that comes through in almost all of the books currently available to us is that the way the world has changed in a covid containing world right i don't want to say post covid world because we're not post covid right um has contained like a whole slew of different situations that don't end up kind of covered by these things uh, i know i personally had uh, three relationships, two or three, depending on how you count them, uh, end at the beginning of the pandemic because of the sort of immediate like, well, everything's locking down and I'm going to just stick with my primary partner and be a tiny pod, see you later, kind of breakups happen to me. Um, and I think a lot of polyamorous people had similar experiences to those that are obviously going to be unexamined by something older than that, that that's a something that someone could fill in at a future date, right? Um, I think similarly, 
there's some there are some things that the way Labriola presents them, I feel like someone else's perspective could come at the same kind of breakups from a different angle that would be helpful. The section on like sex addiction and mental health, I feel like there are other perspectives that could maybe um, be beneficial to get out there. Like absolutely when talking about sex and safer sex practices with partners, like being extremely upfront about where your limits are and about who you're willing to engage with or not based on their behavior is important. But whether or not sex addiction is a thing is already a somewhat controversial <laughs> uh, situation in psychological circles. And choosing like not to see people or stay with people who are engaging in more or riskier sex practices than you do uh, isn't sort of the same thing as the way that section handled that topic. And I would love to sort of see the same subject handled from a more sex positive harm reduction kind of perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree that, um, you know, as, as I said before, she interviewed 45 different people and I'm not really sure whether, you know, she got both sides of, of the breakups and in, in some, some cases. And so, you know, that is inevitably going to, to leave out half of the story um and in in those cases and and so it can um can be difficult to determine whether or not there was more there and and as as you said it, it sort of um can can uh leave out an, an entire side of the story and 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 sort of um maybe come off as not sex positive as as um you would think that a a book about polyamory might <laughs> in in some ways <laughs> and i i really appreciate you bringing COVID in as as an example because um yeah the, in this in this COVID world now there are so many more conversations that that people have to navigate and, and as you talk about um you know risk assessment and, and risk profiles not only are are people having to to determine their own risk profiles for STIs and things like that but now for for COVID and and that has been a whole new layer that has been added on to relationships and I think that uh, polyamorous people and non-monogamous people in general are better equipped to have those conversations because we're we're constantly talking about you know our health status and and risk profiles and and things like that. But um, you know it it also adds another layer of incom possible incompatibilities with with partners or potential partners. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those subjects where. Um, you're going to see a lot more people sort of adding on to their list of line items of things they talk about on early dates. Things like, what are your general health precautions? Not just, 
for specific sex acts, but like in terms of when you get ill with a respiratory virus, do you wear a mask or not is going to become a question in Western countries and not just, you know, occasionally in Japan. You know what I mean? Like it's been a bit of a cultural shift, not as much as I would have expected given what 2020 was like, but a bit of one nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And you had brought up earlier um, the in the autonomy versus intimacy chapter. Uh, Want to dig into mm -hmm. that a, a little bit more because uh, Labriola talks about um, the experiences of folks as if, uh, well, for those of you who haven't read it, it's um, she presents them on a one to 10 scale um, with one kind of being people who need more autonomy and independence and, and 10 being folks who, um, you know, uh, need, ha have a strong need for, for intimacy and, and, and um, kind of presents a number of stories of people on that spectrum. Um, and, and so, as you mentioned before, this is kind of presented as people are a static number and, and that is, that is kind of your number and, and that doesn't fluctuate. Um, would love to, to hear more of your thoughts about that and how you've seen, um, or maybe experienced that within different relationships. Well, so I had sort of two concerns about that. And the first is just that in naming it as an autonomy intimacy scale and placing those two things as the poles when intimacy or intimate relationships are how we generally refer to a whole class of relationships it kind of seems like it almost devalues the people of relationships who are lower on that scale who are or who are on the like autonomous end of that scale or as though those people don't then have legitimate intimate relationships with folks, which is just not true. Um, and as someone who pretty highly values the concept of autonomy and of building independent um, agreements and relationships with people that don't necessarily overlap with one another or that don't necessarily involve me spending a huge amount of time with partners. Like currently I spend one evening and one day per week probably with partners and the rest of the time is either my own time or time with my children, right? But that doesn't mean, you know, and maybe like one extra day a month further of like, ooh, a special occasion, right? That is very different from where I was like three years ago where I was nesting with one partner and then spending about this amount of time with other partners and like there was a lot more sort of expected partnership time even if some of it was kind of downtime right and I as a human haven't changed but maybe my viewpoint on how much alone time I need has or maybe just sort of where emotionally and physically I'm at because as a person with chronic illnesses, some of that stuff has flared and fluctuated over the years, right? These are all factors that can come into effect in people's lives in phases or in a progression all at once toward one direction or another, right? And so to sort of say, as she does in the book, that like, 
if you're at a three or below, you just really shouldn't date people who are over a certain number because you're both going to be dissatisfied. That to me seems like very monogamous thinking. Like, I suppose if the three is trying to be the only support for the eight and the three is never going to have a phase of their life where they in fact are acting more like what she considers a five, then yes, that's true. But it, maybe it's because I sit in the middle of many of these scales, right? I'm bisexual. I'm functionally ambiamorous, which is the term that Paige Turner of Polyland uses for being functionally polyamorous in action, but not like feeling orientationally that way. And like, I just sort of sit in the middle of a bunch of scales. So perhaps in this too, I sit in the middle of a scale. And so I go, what do you mean? What do you mean I can't change my mind? But that didn't sit super well with me on this reread, even though the first time I read it, I went, why, yes, if you need to spend five nights a week with someone, you can't date someone who only wants to see you once a month. Right. Because I can sort of see the logic of both propositions, but the nice thing about polyamory being a choose your own adventure story is you get to figure it out with your partners. Yeah, definitely. And I think as long as you are, you know, communicating with your partners where you are at and what you need and come to agreements about, um, you know, whether that alone time versus, you know, partner time is, is working for, for both or you know all <laughs> involved all. Then, yeah exactly um you know then then i think that's okay um all right and just one limitation oh, yeah. just one last thing that i'd like to bring up before we break is that like i'd love to see someone make the book of the things that she hand waves away that labriola hand waves away as creative solutions that might work here because in almost every section, she ends up mentioning, ah, yes, a creative solution might work here, but, and then makes a suggestion of either, well, but then they broke up, or, but then they had enough money to buy two adjoining homes on the same piece of land. And like, for most of us, we just don't have the cash to get two adjoining homes on the same piece of land. So the creative solutions are what we have available. So I'd love to see somebody's creative solutions handbook, <laughs> uh, if such a thing ever were to be written. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, th I think there is so much more room for, you know, conversation, discussion, um, and, and content that, that can be created around how polyamorous people just kind of have to navigate these unique situations um, that, uh, you know, maybe monogamous folks might not. Um, so just want to take a couple of minutes to kind of wrap up, um, kind of sum up what, what we talked about. Um, you know, there has been a lot of discussion just around um, this section sort of being about 
incompatibilities um, and, and people kind of picking the wrong partner. And that's how, you know, that ultimately leads to the demise of, of the relationships that, that she talks about here. Um, and so just want to get kind of your, your final thoughts um, after, you know, chatting for, for the last 35 minutes or so and, and um, you know, see if, if there anything, anything else that, that we, uh, you know, can, can come to from, from this first section. I mean, I feel like this first section really does boil down to when you pick incompatible partners, you will play stupid games and win stupid prizes. Like, that's what's going to happen. Um, but that it's not always easy to tell when you have done so until you're a fair ways in. And so it's okay to be kind of gentle with ourselves about that if it happens, right? Like, none of these stories, even the ones that end in the full demise of the polycule, are actually tragedies. All of the people are pretty much all right at the end of them. And I think that's something to note within this book. Like, these are breakups, but none of these are like horribly life ending. And that's true of most breakups in most of our lives. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I think that there can be so much pressure for poly relationships to work out. Um, especially for people who are, you know, out and open to the monogamous people in their life, you know, when, when it happens, people are quick to say like, oh, well, it was probably the polyamory. But as, you know, this book touches on, there are so many different reasons why a relationship doesn't work out. And um, I think you're right in, in that being gentle on ourselves um, when when that happens for for various reasons that aren't related to polyamory is is so important um, and I'm really glad that there is this this resource out there that shows us that um, you know everybody goes through these things and and you're not alone basically. <laughs> Well, Laura, I just want to thank you for being here. Um, I've loved chatting with you, getting your thoughts and perspectives on um, poly breakups. Where where can people find you? Um, do you have anything that you'd like to plug for folks listening? So my blog is at readyforpolyamory.com. Uh, and my podcast is the Ready for Polyamory podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. If you'd like to hear the story of uh, my rather dramatic breakup with my ex-husband uh, over my unplanned pregnancy. That's in season five, episode one. Uh, and that was from just a couple of weeks ago. So it should be pretty easy to find. Um, but it is appropriate to this episode if folks would like to go listen to that. Uh, and it sort of goes along with the ideas that are in chapter two of the breakup book. If anyone has any interest in that, it's in an episode about polyamorous parenting. So if you otherwise don't care about polyamorous parenting, you may not care to listen to it. But uh, yeah. And in general, the blog and the podcast are my big things. I'm on social media as at ready for polyamory on uh, Instagram and TikTok. Well, I am definitely going to go listen to that episode now. Thanks for sharing. And thanks again for being here. 
Thank you for having me. It's been great. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. 